So this morning, as we continue on, uh, turn to Romans 8. We're going to be in Romans 8 this morning, 18 through 25. One of the most famous Christmas passages of all time. No, not really. Not really. You're saying, what, how, what does that have to do with? You'll see. We're excited about seeing the point of Christmas through these eyes. And it really is the point, the message to which the message of Christmas speaks to. And so as we do so, let's pray and ask the Lord to guide our time in the word this morning. Father, please speak clearly uh, through the demonstration of your word, your principles, your purposes. Let each heart open and hear what it is you have for them. Um, thank you, Father, for the encouraging hope of the message of the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I want to introduce you to Max. This is my new crazy dog. And uh, he is crazy, yes. And you'll notice he's got one brown eye, one blue eye. Somebody told me at the Turkey Bowl uh, that there's a major league pitcher, Max Scherzer. He's a big-time pitcher, and he's got one blue eye, one brown eye. And they thought that's why we named him. No, we named him Max because of all the adjectives you can put in front of Max that fit. Like, for instance, IMAX right? Larger than life. You know, when he's rummaging for food and he gets into food that he's not, we call him food max. Um, you know, the other night he started doing this thing when he's laying on us, he stretches like this, then we call him super max. Um, and, uh, and then when he goes crazy for squirrels, we call him mad max. And, uh, how many of you ever had a dog that just loves, loves those, those furry critters running around, um, the, uh, the backyard. And so there's something uniquely special, I, I, but I, I, I didn't think I'd get a spiritual application from my crazy dog, but I, I kind of did, and I want to pass it on to you this morning. You know, when there's a squirrel in that back fence, our, our former dog, our blessed Blaze, I'll move on before I start tearing up, um, Blaze used to keep that, y- that yard clean of squirrels. No squirrel dared enter our yard. And so there's about two and a half months between when, when Blaze passed and us getting Max, and those squirrels got a little too full of themselves. They would come down, they started burying things in the lawn, they started coming right up to the patio glass and mocking us and smiling and waving at us and just saying, ha, you can't do anything about it. And so we got Max. And, you know, when there's a squirrel in the backyard, Max goes nuts. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's two modes with Max. There is docile max which is very rare it's like every blood moon we get docile max and and max you know will have his head all the way down on the ground his floppy ears are touching the ground his tails behind him and is completely quiet and we we love those moments those are beautiful moments but normally if there's a squirrel that is on the fence or walks by max jumps up and he is he is at the glass slider with his nose pressed against it. His tail is curved up like this. His body is completely erect. And he's just whining like a junior hire. Right? Just, just, I, I, I don't even try to imitate it. But he is just, he is impassioned to get that squirrel. So what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about this morning? You'll see. So that's my dog, Max. This morning we start with this idea. Cynicism and hope got in a fight. I know that all of you are really into MMA and WWF 
and all that stuff. You guys are big wrestling fans. Um, probably not. But I know that most of you do follow some kind of sports and you have your favorite team. And so you kind of like the, the thing of conflict and tension and, and who's going to win and who's going to come out the victor. And some, you know, for some of you, that's like your marriage and we need to talk about it. But, you know, this morning we're going to go with this whole idea that cynicism and hope got in a fight. Have you ever thought about that? That cynicism and hope are constantly fighting. They really are. So let me give you a picture of this. How, well, well, Pastor, why are you going into this? We're talking about hope, but I've got I to kind of parse it into a, a constructive ideal that you're going to get. That really does apply to each of us in our own lives. That we walk away with something this morning that we can use. And, and this is how we're going to approach it. So let me give you some, some parallel ideas, some, some construct to this. Number one, you have to know what darkness is to really appreciate light, right? I mean, if you always knew light, light would just be a norm. But when you're in complete darkness and you sincerely want light and you get it, right? But think about right before you get it, how desperately you want that light on. I mean, some of us have to harken back to when we were like five and we were scared of the dark. And, you know, you, you can't get to that light switch fast enough, you know, or your mean older brother stole your, your bed light from your room in the middle of the night and you had nightmares and... You can't get to that light fast enough. You guys know what we're talking about. And so secondly, maybe another idea is this idea of you have to know what pretty is to really know what ugly is. Right? And, and some of you are like, well, wait a minute. I, I, you know, I know ugly. Some of you are like, I know pretty. And, and those things are, con- you can't have ugly and pretty mixed. It, it really kind of doesn't work. And so those things are in conflict with each other as well. Cynicism clouds hope. While hope laughs at cynicism. Do you hear the difference in opinions there? Do you hear the difference in the presentation? One has kind of this positive embellishment. Hope does. Cynicism drags you down. Right? It clouds you. How many of you felt the oppressive cold when you got out of your house to come here this morning? And for just a moment, you were, oh, it's too oppressive. I can't make it. I'm not going to be able to do it. You know, so we had some people in between services and they had to go that direction. They almost didn't make it. They were thinking the rain is too difficult. We'll just let those nursery kids survive on their own. No, they made it over there. You know, some people for church on Sundays are like, oh, 10.50 is too early. I can't make it. 9 o'clock is definitely too early. You know, it clouds cynicism, does. but hope, hope has a power The very few things can transcend. Hope digs into a region of who we are, and by the way, it's universal unless cynicism rules your heart. Hope has a universal ability to touch and affect anybody, Right? And so this morning, as we look at this, let's break this down. And we're going to be in Romans 8. And now you're going to start to understand why are we in Romans 8. And what I want to do is cynicism and hope got in a fight. And so we're going to break down this passage and kind of go verse by verse and see who wins verse by verse. This is taking us down to the basics of who we are, of what creation is, of how we live every single day. And so that sets the the, the temperament for the message of Christ, actually. And you'll see how that plays out in a moment. 
So Paul starts out by writing these words. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is he talking about? Well, number one, he's saying suffering is real. I hate to let you guys know this. I hate to be the, the, the purveyor of really bad news. But suffering is real. And I think we live in a world and we live in a civilization in day and age where we can make our comfort level somewhere pretty good and pretty consistent. And so suffering, we start to tease the idea up that, wait, maybe we don't have to suffer. Maybe that's just something that's meant for only certain people. And, and maybe we could get to this utopian society where there's no more suffering. Folks, that utopian society is somewhere very north of here. Any ideas where that might be? Thank you for not saying the North Pole. Yes, it's heaven. And in that moment, that's when we will not, what? No suffering. It is only until then. So how did that happen? How did we get to that point? Why is it that way? And are you feeling kind of cynical the way Paul has started off? <clears throat> Just want to let you all know, suffering is real. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Great Christmas message. Well, let's keep going. Number two, he contrasts suffering with the future glory not yet revealed. Folks, that's a great definition right there of hope. Okay? He contrasts suffering with the future glory not yet revealed. And then he says this. This is his assimilation. This is his conclusion on the matter. And, and, and this is a message just right here. We could just stop right here. He says this. It's really not worth comparing. The suffering that we go through that is very real and the future glory that we will experience with Christ, when you compare those two things, I'm going to let you know when I've wrestled with that, yeah, hands down, the suffering doesn't even compare to the outweighing heft and strength and beauty and power of what hope brings to me through our future glory. Do you get it? So round one goes to hope. All right? Keep score out there. Second verse. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What are we talking about? The creation. The creation, this word right here, in this instance. Now, you're going to see this word creation riddled throughout these verses. Sometimes it is talking in a general sense about the entire creation. Take everything that goes from the first day of creation to the last day of creation. It's the whole expanse. It's all of it. And that's what he's saying here. Is that the entire level of creation that we experience, that we live in, the earth, um, the, the, the climate, the, the, um, the animal life, the plant life, and the human life, all of it is waiting with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, who are the sons of God? Well, let's break this down. Number one, he says the creation is waiting. We love to wait. Raise your hand if you love waiting. We all love waiting. Some of you right now are fixated on the fact that you are waiting for this to get over so you can eat. That is where your focus is. Some of us are fixated on the idea that we are waiting for that perfect gift, right, that's coming up. Some of us are waiting for that tax refund that never comes. You keep thinking you deserve it, and it just doesn't... We hate waiting. Some of us are waiting for people to follow through. 
Some of us are waiting for answers to prayer that we wonder will ever happen. Some of us are waiting for that perfect someone to enter into our life that will bring us joy, peace, happiness. Some of us are waiting to truly understand who Christ is and who God is so we see that change in our life. And all of what I just mentioned probably is a cloud and not a laugh. My friends, today the power of this message is to change what you just thought through. If it was a cloud in your life, to change it into a laugh. Because all of that can happen through the power of Jesus Christ. Creation is unsatisfied. How many of you are unsatisfied right now? Raise your hand. Oh, I'm so unsatisfied with that answer. Okay. We understand this, can't we? Can't we understand this? That creation is unsatisfied. We always are wanting more. You ever get that gift and you're like, is this it? Wait, and you're shaking the box and you're, you know, what? Is that, is that it? That makes when you get a gift that you sense is complete all that much more special, right? The creation is unsatisfied. And there's a reason why all of this is happening. When you see this broken down, the like creation is waiting, creation is desperate, creation is unsatisfied. How do I get that from what Paul's saying? Well, he says literally that the creation waits with eager longing. Now, this word that gives us eager longing, this Greek word, is only used in the New Testament in relation to the return of Jesus Christ. So when you see that ex- expectation, eager longing... It gives some reference to it now, doesn't it? So the creation is waiting for the eager long, with eager longing for the what? For the revealing of the sons of God. When will the revealing of the sons of God happen? Now, I'm, I got a great question in between services. I said, well, wait a minute. We're sons of God right now. And I said, absolutely, you're correct. But we live in a world where we still have to deal with, we're not subject permanently to, but we do have to live in and deal with the bondage of decay. And that's the part we wrestle with. There will be a day where we are released from all of that, where we are given freedom from that. That is what creation is waiting for. Creation is waiting for that giant tune-up. Right? How many of you are waiting to get your car fixed? Or your motorcycle fixed? And you're like, I don't know if my car is going to make it. Have you ever been in that position? No, not us. We all drive brand new cars. We're all in leases get all those things taken care of. There's a sense that you eagerly await. You eagerly await. How many of you get really irritated with that person that says, it's about the journey, it's not about the end? I'll show you a journey. Come on over here. Right? But that, in essence, is what they're saying. What Paul is saying is that when is the revealing of the sons of God? It happens when it's over. When Christ comes back and takes us back, and then what happens? There's a new heaven, there's a new earth, no longer underneath this curse that happened in Genesis 3, and we'll see that in a moment. It's all fixed. It's fixed. It works. Now the beauty of the hope is this, is that you're waiting with expectation. And that is that journey. The question is, will you be dominated? Will you, will you lay down on the family room floor with your nose down on the ground and your floppy ears just resting there and your tail silent? 
Or will you be erect at the window with your nose pressed against it, whining and groaning because you see what you want and you're ready to go and you are impassioned, you are emboldened to pursue it? Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be clouded or do you want to be able to laugh at those things of this world? Because that's the power that hope brings. So what do I say? <laughs> Sorry, I've got to give this round of cynicism. Because when you look at it right there, it's just like, hey man, we're stuck. Until, until Christ returns, we're stuck with this. So now I'm just going to think about that. I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling a little clouded. Well, thank God there's more verses. So continuing on, it says, For the creation was subject to futility. Futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. In hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. Now, here's some of that language I was telling you is coming. All right, so let's look at this. Number one, the creation was forced into futility. This word futility, I, I don't, we don't use that very often. Do you guys walk around saying, well, that's futile. That's futile. That's futile. Every once in a while, you guys may be educated enough to, to, to say that. You may be astute enough. Our Thanksgiving dinner, we sat around the table. We ate like most people eat and we had some great conversation, and then we read the proclamation of Thanksgiving issued by, uh, by Lincoln. And I said, in the immortal words of that great uh, poet laureate, Nicholas Cage, out of uh, National Treasure, people just don't talk like that anymore. And when we read it, we saw what we were, you know, what I was talking about. Just beautiful language. I, d- I don't necessarily walk around saying, maybe I should, saying, that's futile, that's futile. Maybe a word that we use more often is pointless, worthless. Are you getting a, a comprehensive scope of what, what Paul's trying to say here? Is that creation was subjected to pointlessness, to worthlessness. Now, wait a minute, stop. I, I, I think there's some pretty great things about nature and beauty and animal life and plant life. Here's the point, is it's not operating the way it initially was set up to operate. According to Scripture. According to Scripture, it should have been phenomenal. We shouldn't have had to deal with the curse. But Genesis 3, God appoints a curse. So here's the, here's the crazy thing. The creation was forced into futility. Why are we suffering? Here's a mind bender. Don't get, don't get confused with this. We're suffering because that curse was placed on mankind because of sin. Now, when you're suffering, what's the one thing that's on your mind? Well, two or three things. But one of, one of multiple things should be, I can't wait to get better. What does it look like to be better? I would dare say that you've either got to be in a state where there's no opportunity to suffer. Or if you are in a position where there is suffering, that suffering can drive you towards hope. Does that make sense for you? That that suffering can drive you towards hope. And so Paul says, yes, suffering is real. Why is the suffering here? Because man chose to sin. And suffering is a result of that sin. Genesis 3. We're not going to look at it, but you can, you can reference to it. Then the last point is that the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. My dad's a physicist. There's a law called the law of entropy, right? Isn't that the third law of thermodynamics? The law of entropy. 
Our entropy starts usually around age 24. Anybody feeling that? All right, we're continually breaking down. There will be a day where we're no longer breaking down. Hallelujah. Right? And so there's this idea that we're going to be set free. Remember the creation is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. All of this happens on that day, that return of Christ. No longer will we be subject to the futility, but we will be free from the bondage to decay. Are you catching this? Are you seeing it? See, if you're focused on the bondage of decay, then you have a cynical heart. Now cynicism is starting to win. Now the scales are dropping over here. But if you look at that suffering and you say, I have great hope and expectation for when it will be corrected because that's been promised to me by the Lord, then hope starts to go like this and it holds more gravity in my life. And it is the power, it is the directive in my life, not the cynicism. Folks, tip this way. Okay? Tip that way. So, who wins here? That's a hard call. How many of you would say cynicism wins here? Well, if that's your vote, you're cynical. I don't want to listen to you because we're supposed to focus on hope. So, actually, hope wins on this point. I apologize. I made my PowerPoint a little... See, it's because of the fall. It's because of the curse. I made my PowerPoint a little bit too deep. But it said... Hope wins there. So we're two to one if you're counting. And so we go on in the scripture. It says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Nothing too strange, nothing too different here other than it's saying childbirth and the men in the room are saying, yeah, I don't know how that applies to me. It's a metaphor, folks. It's, it's this metaphor saying, just as you would experience pains in childbirth, that's how the creation is groaning. It's longing for those pains to be over, to come to the point of resolution where there is the joy and the pain ceases. Do you see how Paul's using figurative language here? And so what does he say? Well, let's, let's look at these points real quickly. Number one, the physical creation is groaning. So remember I told you the, the word creation here is bouncing back and forth a little bit to the whole creation as well as to us as the created as individuals. And here he separates that out. Number one, the physical creation is groaning. We see that, and you know, you ever get these questions about, well, if God is God, why does he let Katrina happen? Why did he let the tsunami happen over in, in Thailand? What about the earthquakes down in, I just heard we had an earthquake today, like centered here, 2.6. Yeah. So my, my prayer that I hope I don't die in an earthquake was realized today. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, moving on. That the idea of the physical creation is groaning is this idea. That the creation, as finite as it is, as incredible as it is, and is how, it, how it's sustained and the science of it all is working, it's not perfect. It was perfect. According to Scripture, it was perfect. But it's just not perfect now. Ergo, just one thing, because I'm not a physicist. My dad is. I'm not. I'm not a scientist. But from what I understand, we have this law of entropy, that it's all just kind of breaking down. And so 
Paul, in his infinite wisdom, understood that the whole physical creation is groaning. You see that cycle of death. Death was not part of the initial equation. But it is now. Then he says this. The believers groan as we wait for our legal rights. What? We just got into legalities. We bounced them through science. Now we're into legal terms. What does that mean? It means this. Go to the groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Again, pointing forward to the time where all of the decay, all of the difficulty, all of the suffering is what? It's eliminated. It's gone. Because God promises that to us. That's what we're hoping for. The cynic says, this is all there is, and I'll take what I can get. He who hopes and understands the hope in Jesus Christ says, this is here because of sin and because of decay and because of the curse. But I hope in Jesus Christ and I have something waiting for me. Because of my faith, I am seen as an adoptive son of God. We've talked about adoption this morning. That uh, uh, Dave and Rachel are embarking on this journey. And they will uh, receive a child into their home, much like Becky and, and Stephen have. And they will start to enjoy that relationship as a parent. They've already committed themselves in that love. Are you tracking this? But legally, there has to be a procedure. And so they will have to wait. They will have to wait until that moment comes when that judge makes his ruling and gives the final legal, you are mine. Or, or, or the, the children are belong to them. The same thing happens to us as believers. That when we come in faith to Jesus Christ, we are now adoptive sons of God. But there is a waiting period to receive the inheritance. That's probably a better way to say that. It was a little confusing first hour. And that happens again when Christ returns. When we are removed from the suffering, then we receive everything that has been granted to us legally under Christ. There's an interesting thing, and I remind my dad of this often, that uh, as an adoptive child, you have more rights than a biological child. You can't get rid of me, Dad. So sorry. That you have these, these rights that have been determined... And, and so Paul uses this language in Ephesians, he uses it here in Romans, and it's specific that it is the strongest legal bond and right to inheritance that could possibly exist. This is not by mistake that it's, it's, it's listed this way. And so we groan as we wait. Are you groaning? Are you groaning? I hope you're groaning. I hope you're standing at the door with your ears pert and your tail like this. And just, you know, groaning. Making horrible noises. Because you so desperately want to break through that window and chase that squirrel. You get it? Again, the cynic would say, I'll never catch that squirrel. That's just stupid anyway. Better for me just to lay here. I'm comfortable. Which one do you choose? Some of us are saying, well, I kind of like laying around. That's kind of good. See the purpose of the metaphor. The believer waits eagerly, groaning for our legal rights. That's what Paul's saying. And hope changes our whole attitude. Hope changes our whole approach to life. Because of this. The suffering is real, but we don't have to be defined by it. 
Let's keep going on. By the way, hope wins on that point. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the hope of redemption is the result of our salvation. He's talking about the fact that hope can see what others can't. There's a great movie that, that, there's a pun here, and if you know the movie, you'll see my pun. Not a lot of people can stomach. It's a movie called Alive. It's about a, uh, um, a rugby team that their plane crashed in the 70s in the Andes. And uh, most of them actually survived the plane crash. Um, but they were there for months. And planes flew over, but they just couldn't see them. And, um, and so when things got desperate enough, they realized nobody was coming anymore. Uh, two guys headed out. Actually, multiple times they tried to head out, and they just couldn't make it. Storms came, and they had to head back. And one guy actually died on one of those. So that kind of tempers your, your effort to walk out of there. They gave it one more shot, and, and um, one gentleman named Nando, and, and these guys are in their, in their teens, and they're high up in the Andes. They don't even know where they are. They don't even know which way to go. And, and another good friend of his, I don't remember his name, but they decide to go and try to walk out and, and get rescue. And the movie's a pretty good de- depiction of the true story, and they're up on this high, high peak, and they're trying to climb over this this very difficult precipice and the one guy finally just gives up his feet are frozen he he's going to lose his feet and um he just gives up he's sitting on a ledge and he's literally about 20 feet below the top of the ridge and he turns to nando and he just says i can't do it i'm done i'm just going to sit here and i'm going to die i'm going to die and nando says no that's not why we're here we can, we can make this. And so he helps push Nando up and up to the top of this ridge. And he doesn't have the energy to get up there on his own. And he calls out to Nando and he says, what do you see? Nando says, it's beautiful. It's glorious. You've got to see it. Come, come up. He gives him the strength to make one more push. Nando helps him up and he gets up and the director does a great job of delaying the reveal. And they show you know, him getting up. They show him turning the camera and he's getting in different positions. And they come around and they show you his face from where he had come from. And you see despair on his face. And he grabs Nando and he says, how can you say that? And now you look behind him to what Nando had seen. And it's just miles of snow-capped mountains. He says, how can you say that? And Nando looks at him with just a smile on his face and strength in his soul. And he says, because today I'm alive. And today I'm looking at God's creation. And today in this moment, I get to see what nobody else gets to see. Folks, that's power. That is the power of hope. What did that do? That gave both of them the strength to walk down that mountain and walk back up another set and eventually find a village and eventually rescue the rest of the people in the plane. 
The power of hope brings freedom. And the message of Christ and the message of the Christmas story brings to a lost and desperate and suffering people and creation freedom from the bondage of decay. Are you seeing how this message out of Romans 8 relates to the Christ child? How it relates to Christmas? How it relates to the commonality of the problem of mankind and creation? What drives you and what determines who you are? Are you the cynic that is determined by cynicism and you're laying on the floor with your head as low as it can go and your ears just lying flopping down and your tail docile? Or are you at the window ready to drive through it alive, excited, and groaning because you can't wait to break through that window and get your prize? That's what Christ does for you. That's what the hope of Christ does for you. Round goes to hope. Ding! Hope's the winner. Hope's the winner. This is a great quote. Um, by the way, Chesterton was uh, born or died in 1036, although he was born in 1974. So I'm here to tell you that I typed that late at night, and that's the one error that people found during first service. Thank you so much for your cynical, divisive hearts that want to point out my mis- one mistake. I so appreciate it. But let's look at this quote by Chesterton because it's incredibly powerful. He says this, As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is a mere flattery or platitude. Wow. you got to stop. Sometimes when we read quotes, we move through them too quickly. We'll get to the second half here. Just contemplate what that means. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is a mere flattery or platitude. In other words, Chesterton is saying, hope cannot be defined as hope if your circumstances are good. That's not hope. Hope doesn't exist in that moment, not to its fullness, not to its fruition. And so he goes on to explain. He says, it is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a what? A strength. Picture Nando and his friend on top of those mountains. Hope didn't come to the two of them as they walked into the village and were greeted by the mayor and a rescue team. That was the end of the journey. That was the fruit of hope. Hope came on top of a desperate spot on a tall mountain when things were hopeless. And then he says something incredibly profound. Like all the Christian virtues, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. I will be as honest as I can and forthright with you as I can because Scripture says this over and over and over and Chesterton recognizes it, that the Christian faith is unreasonable. To the end that it was unreasonable for Nando to stand on top of that mountain and proclaim... Great hope in the midst of dire... That's not a reality, Nando. That's nice. That's a nice hallmark sentiment. Write it on a card and mail it to somebody. But we ain't getting out of here. That's the reality. That's the science of it. That's the practicality of it. We're done. We're finished. Pack it up. Put your head on the ground. Let your ears flop down. And don't let your tail move. Because the cynical mind says, this is the reality of it. Chesterton recognizes that. We should as well. 
And what a tragedy if we stop there. But because Christ came in the most impractical way, in the most improbable way, there is hope. You remember Mary, right? Where we started today. That was pretty impossible. And our mind tells us that is impossible. And yet, what do we see happening all over the, all over the place now through science? Women having children without... Now, I know the rest of the science, but we'll just let that go. But if I were to tell you 300 years ago, hey, a woman can have a child with ever, without ever being with a man, you would say, that's nuts. There's no science to that. It doesn't work. And people will still say the, the virgin birth was so improbable. How improbable is it? You've got a woman that can give birth. That's half the equation right there. Half done. The other half depends on God. And historically, we see what happened. The issue, though, is hope. The cynic would say, well, that didn't happen that way. It just happened. You know, we could explain that away. And now you just want to sit down. You're not moved. But the passion behind the story is God's involvement. And the passion behind the story for you and I today about hope relates to us personally. And if you're in your sermon notes, continue on. So what do we learn from all this? We learn that hope wins. But let's be practical about it. Let's be pragmatic about it. Let's go back to Bethlehem. What if Mary had been cynical about Gabriel's message? What if she had said, Ah, wait a minute. This is impossible. Oh, that's right. She did say it was impossible. But did you glean from her a, a, a cloudy, distorted, cynical attitude? No. Why? Because she focused on what she had seen happen. God did the impossible already with her cousin and Zechariah. Kind of cool how God does that and inspires us and gives us that hope. So my question to you is what if Mary had been cynical about Gabriel's message? Well... Thank God she wasn't. What if the shepherds had decided finding the Christ child would be too hard? Right? You're sitting there, you're watching sheep, and you're thinking, if I leave, if we all leave, who's going to watch the sheep? Sheep are dead. Now we, uh, we're broke for the year. Or our boss is, you know, going to fire us all. We better not leave. That's not practical. Plus... You know, the star's going to rest over this house, but Bethlehem's a really small place, so how am I going to know exactly which house? And it's late. What am I going to do? I'm going to just go knocking on doors and wake people up? Somebody, you know, not going to be mad at me. They threw all that away because why? Because they're standing at the door with their tails straight up, with their ears pert and with their nose plastered, and they're groaning with great hope and expectation. They're going to experience something tremendous. That's what hope does. What if Joseph had decided his life would be ruined by staying with Mary? That's a practical application, isn't it? That's a practical application. What if his cynical heart had taken over and he had said, No, nah, this is too much of a burden to bear. I can't do this. Isn't it fascinating that God knew that that would be a challenge for him and so he sent Gabriel to Joseph as well? Who knows what happened that isn't written in Scripture to help Joseph in that moment? 
God will not leave you alone in those moments where cynicism wants to take over. You just have to walk through it with hope. There's always the opportunity. It's how you will respond to it. So my question to you today, since we went back to Bethlehem, let's go to right now in Concord. Will hope win in you? Will hope win in you? What if you have financial problems? How does hope fit in there? God, I've been waiting with groanings. I've been praying and praying, and yet I'm still dealing with financial problems. You're still breathing, right? Still alive? You can still praise God? You still have joy in your heart? My encouragement to you is this. Not everything was great for Mary. Not everything was great for Joseph. Not everything was great for Jesus. He was born in horrible circumstances, yet he was still Christ, and still the hope of salvation came to mankind. So focus on the things that are hopeful. Don't focus on the things... Now, don't ignore your financial situation. Don't let it determine who you are. And always hold to the hope. Don't put your head down on the floor. Don't let your tail just sit there. Groan. Groan with eager expectation. What if relationship problems are are your challenge with cynicism? How does hope fit in there? We just saw a good friend of ours who she would have told you she's done every study on what it means to be single. Okay? She had resigned herself to single womanhood. She just got engaged on Thanksgiving Day. Was she cynical about whether she would ever experience that relationship? There's probably times. But if cynicism had won the day over hope, I guarantee you she wouldn't be engaged right now. You see, that's what the hope of Christ does. It's the power of the hope in Christ that changes the heart. So that we see life completely differently. And we're ready to burst through four inches of plate glass and chase a squirrel. What if you have eternity problems? How does that fit in? Well, the challenge is exactly what Chesterton says here. This whole thing of faith in Jesus Christ and heaven and hell and all that, all of this, the Christmas story, is highly what? Unreasonable. It is. It's highly unreasonable. So we have a choice. We can let the cynicism win the day. and We can lay down and live in the reasonableness. By the way, there is reasonableness within the story. You just have to search for it. But not all of it's there. Purposefully. It's a journey of hope. That we will receive the full redemption when Christ comes back. What hope would this this small child bring? Your answer is found in the cave in Bethlehem. The redemption of creation from the bondage of sin and death. That's it. That's the hope. And that's what can win the day. And that's what does win the day. For those who receive Him, they've been given the gift to be called sons of God. This morning as I close, I hope you walk away letting hope dictate your day and not cynicism. Because all things are possible For those who love Him. He works out all things for good for those who love Him. Does that mean there's no suffering? 
And what do we do in the midst of the suffering? We hope, we groan for the day. We long, we eagerly long and eagerly wait and look with great expectation for the day where there will be no more suffering. Just make sure you're ready for that day. We can hope and hope and hope, but if we haven't placed our trust in it, then we're needlessly hoping. Let me pray for you as we leave today. And God bless you in your week. Practice hope. Practice hope. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this message, this powerful message, and let it dictate my life. This is a challenge for me just in my personal dealings or my occupational dealings. and Just every day there is a challenge to be cynical. So I pray that at the forefront of my mind, my mind would be focused and looking steadily towards the blessings and the ultimate freedom that those in you will experience from the bondage of decay. Thank you that there is hope in Christ. Thank you that we can demonstrate that hope one with another. Let us take that message and live it and practice it every day. To your glory, Lord. Amen.